Hello again, this is Pastor Ed Collins with North Christian Church. This is part 80 of The Lord is Our Confidence. Let's bow our heads and open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege, this opportunity to gather together this way, this unique way to break bread. That is the very bread of life, Father. Thank you so much for this opportunity, for remembering us, for always being faithful to your children, Father. Thank you for all the grace and the mercy and the love that you bestow on each one of us, as well as a congregation. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are still ill or hurting or lacking some form of comfort. We pray that you give them comfort, that they realize that it is a grace gift from you. If we are to be used as vessels in orchestrating that comfort, Father, uh, this we would pray for as well. Uh, we'd be grateful for the opportunity, Father. Use us as you will. We also pray for those in this world, Father, that are still lost in desperate need of saving faith, Father, that we pray that you humble them, that they repent and receive saving faith before it's too late, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a moment in time like this a reality, a time to rejoice. We're so grateful, Father. We just ask for your blessings on this message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 80, my friends, of the Lord is our confidence. I want to start by saying I do appreciate all the prayers uh, and the kind words many of you sent during my vacation this past week. Uh, when I say I needed it, this vacation, that is an understatement. Truth be told, I hope all of you are doing just fine as I am now. I will say this as well. Regarding the two messages in the blog the Spirit picked out for us this past week, let me say this. God's timing is impeccable. Sunday's message on May 3rd was, Thank God for Mercy. That was plucked from March 4th of 2018. Thursday's message, which was May 7th, Why All the Complexity and Chaos? And if you were a little bit diligent, you know that that was actually the, the first of a multi-part series. So if you really like that one, I would encourage you. That one was posted originally on May 24th of 2018. I would encourage you to go back to the May time frame uh, in 2018 and listen to the other installments of Why All the Complexity and Chaos. And then, of course, finally slotted for May 9th, which was Saturday, This Too Shall Pass which was our blog that was found in a or in the diary of a journeyman volume number one remember there's two volumes and those are fantastic resources all hyperlinked easy to get to if you like that like i did when i read it myself and by the way i listened to both these messages and read the blog when i went to the blog i just kept on reading it was Remember, the Diary of a Journeyman has chapters built around certain topics. And I believe this particular topic was under the subtitle, Suffering. So I just kept on reading, and it was fantastic. Anyways, just some encouragement to, to utilize the resources that are available to you on the website. I'll tell you a little story, though, about how these particular messages in the blog were chosen. Honestly, originally I had planned to just give you all the week to yourselves. Sort of a, you know, fend for yourselves week and see what happens. But interestingly, on the Friday before I began my vacation, I was having my coffee in my recliner. I was just about to send a reminder to my leadership team of the bookends of my vacation. And the Spirit asked me to give you messages and a blog to fill your time. Little did I know how amazingly perfect his choices would be. And I, honestly, I wasn't flippant at all about it. But like I said, I, I really was 
burning out or burned out <laughs> even as I took the time to go to the website and, and comb through previous messages. The mercy message stuck out, stuck out to me, so I chose it based on the outline that I saw. But when I say I had no idea how incredibly perfect it was, that's an understatement. I listened to it on Sunday, like I imagine most of you did, and I'm not ashamed to say, I wept the entire message. It was just perfect, perfect. And again, to be totally transparent here, I had even forgotten that it was Communion Sunday. That's how burned out I was. Well, as you saw, the Spirit had that covered too, didn't he? I didn't even know it was a Sunday message when I picked it, nor one that included a communion service. <laughs> Obviously, the Spirit did. The second message regarding complexity and chaos was such a perfectly timed message that in retrospect, it's hard to fathom a different one being in its place. Did I know that we were in the midst of power outages at the time of that message back in 2018? Nope. But apparently we were. Not quite as inconveniencing as all this coronavirus stuff, but some wonderful perspective for all of us to chew on regarding the root cause for complexity and even chaos in our lives, namely sin. We ought to be able to draw some conclusions about our lives even today. Again, just a perfect choice for us. And then, of course, the blog was titled, This Too Shall Pass. Uh, need I say more about that? I don't think so. But as someone reminded me this past week, up here on the board, deliverance is but a change of perspective away. There shouldn't be an A there. Deliverance is but a change of perspective away. So I just wanted to share that revelation with you post-listening to two messages and reading the blog, myself even. I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, even though your pastor was pretty beat up before his vacation, the Spirit managed to pick three perfect grace gifts for our congregation in my absence. So I share because I hope, I hope you thank him the way I have done during and after each installment. All right, with that said, let's get down to business, my friends. As always, I'm really excited to see where the Spirit's going to take us next. If you recall, though, before I left on vacation, we were just about finishing up this series titled, The Lord is Our Confidence. As you can see, this is part 80 of that series. Very few series, in, in, in definitely in recent memory, can I remember going this long. This is a big series. 80 parts so far. So as you can see, this is an 80-part series. Uh, so we, but, but we've still got a little tidying up to do. Before we close up shop and the Spirit has me take you to yet another green pasture. So, in the utmost humility, let's endeavor to do this thing, shall we? Looking back now, before vacation, two Thursdays ago, with part 79, we were reminded about the futility of chasing after the wind in life. Go to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, where we see the great Solomon, uh, the wisest man of his time, open up this incredible book of experiments, earthly experiments at that, but also heavenly conclusions. We see him open up this book with the conclusions themselves, which really just sets the stage for the rest of the book. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Again, we were reminded when we read this about the futility of chasing after the wind in life. And this is how Solomon says, I love it, it's so simple. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Our overall conclusion after reading the first and third chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes was this up here on the board. Solomon's wisdom is on full display for all to learn from. The key lesson is that a life apart from God is an exercise in futility. 
A life apart from God is an exercise in futility. All the promises of the, quote, good life in this world are vain attempts at arrogance seeking, you know, self-righteousness, self-confidence, self-esteem, self, you name it. All these promises that are just, that we're pelted with through media, through friendships, through the world system, as we would call it theologically, all these promises of the good life, these so-called blessings from the world, they're all vain attempts at arrogance to try to establish the self-life, obviously in the absence of God. So with that as our backdrop, we noted how life itself is seasonal. Go forward to Ecclesiastes 3.1. I'm going quickly here. I'm covering a fair amount of ground because these are all points of review. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1. Solomon wrote, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. Up here on the board from our previous study, For everything there is a season. The Bible teaches us to think about life from God's perspective. That is, that he is in control, implying we are not. God already knows the end from the beginning. What will be, will be. Be. That's what the Bible encourages us. It teaches us to think about life from God's perspective. That's the antithesis, if you would, of being down here on earth and thinking about things existentially, not to use a big word, but to try to conceptualize heavenly things by looking at just earthly things or earthly ideas. The idea is to elevate our thinking so that we think more like God. From God's perspective, that's when we really truly are set free. So what we gleaned previously from Solomon's wisdom is that there are definitely earthly-minded aspects to life that we must all be very aware of. That's a truth that we cannot depart from. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. While it's true that our minds ought to be set on the things above and not on earth, a la Colossians 3, that doesn't mean we are purposely ignorant of the things of this world. It actually helps us contextually. Remember, life has a context. It helps us contextually to see the world for what it is. When the Bible teaches us lofty things, the idea is to encourage a transcendent attitude. That's God's attitude, right? That's a God, what we would call a godly attitude. And that's what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us of lofty things, heavenly things, godly things. This idea is to encourage a transcendent attitude even to exist in us. With all that stated, here's the disclaimer up here on the board relative to transcendence. A transcendent viewpoint can still see all that is below it. Now just imagine this before you read any further even. Just visualize that. A transcendent viewpoint a heavenly viewpoint. Think of God's perspective, looking down on earth. It's not like he can't see everything that's going on. It's not like we should forego seeing everything that goes on. A transcendent viewpoint can still see all that is below it. With our minds fixed on things that are above, we are not blind to the things that are on earth. That's Colossians 3.2. Again, let me repeat that. With our minds fixed on the things that are above, we're not blind. doesn't mean we're blind to the things that are on earth. Colossians 3, 2. We can and should still observe the things around us on earth. The point is that deliverance is a mindset, not blindness or willful ignorance. Let that sink in. Deliverance is a mindset. Set your mind on the things that are above. It doesn't mean you're blind or willfully uh, ignorant of the things that are on earth. With that said, the Apostle Paul's wisdom gave us this sort of a balance statement. Go to 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. So keep this in mind. Deliverance is a mindset, not blindness or willful ignorance. Remember our old saying, see it all as truth. See it all as truth. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Again, we want to couple now. And this is all review. We want to couple Paul's wisdom with the wisdom that Solomon gained from earthly mindedness. 
2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In season and out of season, be ready with the word. In other words, have that transcendent viewpoint regardless of what's going on down here on earth because that's how God thinks about things. Again, between these two principles, the one derived from the earthly experimentation of Solomon to the one imparted to Timothy from Paul, we have come up with this point on the board, this idea, this conception of transcendence that leads to deliverance. Again, a transcendent viewpoint can still see all that is below it, just like Solomon when he, when he, when he performed his experiments in life. It's not like he didn't see it. He saw it firsthand. That's the whole point of the book. Transcendent viewpoint can still see all that is below it. With our minds fixed on the things that are above, we're not blind to the things that are on the earth. Colossians 3.2 We can and should still observe the things around us on earth. Deliverance, then, is a mindset, not blindness or willful ignorance. Let's read Paul's wisdom now uh, relative to Colossians 3. Go to Colossians 3, 1. Paul gives us a little bit more wisdom to help us with this principle on the board. Colossians 3, verse 1. All points of review, my friends. Colossians 3, verse 1. Again, we're just after that big picture. We're coming out of the mine shaft, right? It's part 80. We're just finishing up our series. We want to collect all the artifacts and, and the big picture perspective we can before we move on. Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. That If you're a believer, in other words, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion. I'm thinking about even the experiments that we all go through in a likewise manner to Solomon even, how many of us can say we haven't experimented in this way or that way and figured out all the failures and the shortcomings of living for and in the world or as, as a member, if you would, or a friend of the world? That's all Paul's saying. Put all that stuff to death. You're above that now as a believer. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed uh, in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, the idea is to enjoy God's viewpoint on life itself. The point of the board, this is what we're developing, a transcendent viewpoint, can still see all that is below it. With our minds fixed on the things that are above, we are not blind, though, to the things that are on earth. We can and should still observe the things around us. Deliverance is a mindset, not blindness or willful ignorance. It's interesting because the Apostle John also wrote about this transcendent viewpoint, encouraging his disciples to press on with it as well. Before we dig in, though, I want you to concentrate. And it's going to really take some concentration. I'm, I'm going to try to get you to think a certain way now. So really concentrate here. Here's an analogy for you. Let's suppose a person is born into royalty. And let's say they are a prince or a princess even. But at birth, they are separated by war from their royal family. And along comes a poor, though kindly beggar. They find this person and they raise them on the city streets as a homeless person. What's the difference between the child and the beggar? Well, 
One is actually royalty and the other is not. So why doesn't the prince or princess, the child, simply elevate to their position immediately? The answer is ignorance. Think about that. They don't know any better. They, nobody's, they don't know any better. You see, that's the, pro, that's the problem. They're ignorant. They don't elevate because of their ignorance. They simply don't know any better. Okay, so what's the difference between an earthly-minded believer and an unbeliever? The believer has been adopted by the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords into his royal family, and the unbeliever hasn't. Why doesn't the believer then immediately transcend their circumstances? Ignorance. Same thing. Ignorance. The reason why a person born again into privilege doesn't transcend their paltry earthly mindedness is because they're ignorant. Or, to be fair, to complement that, they are constantly being lied to about their position in Christ. One way or the other, though, the God of this world has blinded their minds from the truth about themselves even. What a tragedy. Imagine that we are royalty, right? We're members of God's personal family. And some of us act like we're bumps. Some of us act like we have no privileges whatsoever. So please concentrate. This point that I'm making, my friends, is the only way that a believer like yourself can be robbed of this incredibly freeing, transcendent viewpoint. It's the only way. Up here on the board, the truth about yourself. Every believer born again into God's royal family has the God-given right to transcend their earthly circumstances. Isn't that what we just read in Colossians 3? Exactly what we just read. Paul said, you're not down there. You're not of them anymore. You're royalty now. Transcend. Keep your, get, keep your mind set on the things above where your, where your godly family is, where your father is, where your Lord, where your husband is. Every believer born again into God's royal family has the God-given right to transcend their earthly circumstances. The only way they fail in this endeavor is to remain ignorant about it, which, let's face it, some refuse to learn the word, or they've been lied to, or both. Some combination. Again, every believer has the God-given right to transcend their earthly circumstances. The only way they fail in this endeavor is to remain ignorant about it by refusing to learn the word, or being lied to, or both. This was the Apostle John's encouragement we noted as well last time. Go to 1 John 2, verse 12. 1 John 2, verse 12, just to grab John's viewpoint again. 1 John 2, verse 12. Again, John had something to say about this topic. The truth about yourself. That's what I love about the apostles when they wrote. They wrote to remind us of who we are in Christ Jesus. Wonderfully edifying, wonderfully encouraging, wonderfully uplifting. 1 John 2.12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Isn't that just a wonderful reminder? You see John's cadence here, even just, I'm just telling you, remember? Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in this world. Those, that's the trap. That's what keeps your mind off the things that are above. When you start loving and having certain affections for the things of this world, that's the whole temptation that... Satan in the kingdom of darkness presents to us daily every chance it gets. Don't you love us? Shouldn't you have a little more affection for the things of this world? No, no, that's the trap. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever again. The truth about yourself, every believer born again into God's royal family has the God-given right to transcend their earthly circumstances. The only way they fail in this endeavor is to remain ignorant about it by refusing to learn the word or being lied to or both some combination. Here's the practical side of it up here on the board. Ungodly bondage. Satan's plan is to keep we believers as earthly minded as possible for as long as we live. That's the only thing he's got on us is the temptation, is the control of, or is the control through the human flesh even. That's why if you notice the, that passage we just read, it's, it's all about uh, seduction of the, the, the flesh itself. Satan's plan is to keep we believers as earthly minded as possible for as long as we live. Take a good long look at your life and discover the variety of ways he accomplishes this. They're there, trust me. They are there. For example, media, internet, so-called, quote, friends, old habits, etc., etc. Reminds me of that, that message about the complexity and chaos with the locomotive, right? All the momentum, that what's between those two parentheses there and the point of the board, that's what builds momentum. It's like heaps and heaps of coal on that locomotive, right? Just this momentum going in the direction, in the wrong direction. Satan loves that. Again, ungodly bondage. Satan's plan is to keep we believers as earthly-minded as possible for as long as we live. So take a good long look at your life and discover the variety of ways he's accomplishing this. The wisdom from the Spirit has been to avoid investing in the world's economy. John just wrote about that. Do not love the world. Don't invest in that thing. It's grotesque. It's seductive. It's tempting. It's sinful. The wisdom from the Spirit is to change that, is to avoid even investing any of your resources in the world's economy, where the currency, of course, is creature credit, not grace. All right, to be fair, you some of you might at this juncture be saying, okay, pastor, there you go again. You're, you're, you're waxing philosophical. I need more specifics here. What do you mean by investing in the world's economy? I need more specifics. Okay, I understand that sentiment. So I'll, I'll give you this up here on the board. Seeing it all as truth. Behind every temptation is an invitation to merchandise in Satan's economy. It's a bad investment. Solomon wrote an entire book about this. That's Ecclesiastes. And concluded, all is vanity. We just saw that opening up this message in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Accept this wisdom and save yourself a lot of trouble. <laughs> Seeing all is truth doesn't mean, you, you, you set your mind on things above, doesn't mean that that transcendent viewpoint ignores willfully all the things that are going on around us, the temptations, the seductions. Understand this, that behind every temptation is an invitation to merchandise in Satan's economy. You say, I need more specifics. You're waxing philosophical. You're talking about economies. I don't get it. This is how it works. If you, if you sin as a result of temptation, you end up in Satan's economy. Again, behind every temptation is an invitation to merchandise, to trade, you see, in Satan's economy. It's a bad investment. Solomon wrote an entire book about it and, and concluded, all is vanity. Please accept this wisdom, save yourself a lot of trouble. That's the point. You might still be saying, okay, I get it. But what does this mean for me personally? I mean, how am I investing in Satan's worldly economy? Maybe you don't see it yet. Maybe this is still a little bit too abstract just yet. Here, let me, let me see if I can stir your critical thinking here. Because it's really a conversation that needs to occur between the Lord and you 
not you and I. So I'm not going to give you all the specifics in your own life because, frankly, I don't know them. I could completely steer you wrong, you see? I don't want to do that. I can lead you to, to, you know, to the water. I can't make you drink, of course, but I can, I can lead you in the right direction. You have to take the time to have these conversations through prayerful fellowship with the Lord. You have to take the time to do the work with him. This isn't by any means an exhaustive list of ways a believer can invest in the world's economy that I'm, what I'm about to present to you, but they are certainly popular ways, as I see it up here on the board, just some ways that believers invest in the world economy. To answer that question, what about me? How, how am I doing this thing? Well, any activity where creature credit is the objective, <laughs> that's one way. Any activity where creature credit is the objective. In other words, you want the glory. You do something, you say something, you purchase something, you invest in something, you give your energy to something. Whatever it is, any activity where creature credit is the objective, where you get a, quote, return on investment in Satan's economy, that's one way that you're investing. Number two, any activity where God's glory is diminished in favor of your own. In other words, anytime you're trying to elevate yourself above God, God who, right? In that moment, you could probably think about a thousand things right now. In that moment where you're like, you weren't thinking anything about God. You were literally just thinking about yourself. Well, there's one activity. How about these? A little more specific now. Going to church, you know, to look good. Or even bragging about your knowledge of Holy Scripture. To me, that's got to be one of the ugliest things on planet Earth is to is to see a person who has Holy Scripture, and they use it like a like a whip. They they use it as a, a way of bragging about themselves. Again, going to church to look good or bragging about your knowledge of Holy Scripture, and then finally, again, just another way. It's not an exhaustive list here. How about attributing your worldly successes to yourself instead of God's grace? That's a big one, I think, in America. Self-made man, self-made woman. Everything's about overachievement, right? I'm an I'm an overachiever. I you know I I always hit my number. I'm always doing. I'm an overachiever. Who's that about, anyways? Honestly, who's that about? Who's whose back is getting padded in that scenario? Again, attributing your worldly successes to yourself instead of God's grace. Again, these are just the things that the Spirit brought to mind while I was drafting this message. They are certainly broad enough, I hope, to get your mind thinking rightly. Uh, if, I, if, I, if I present, the point is, if I present too narrowly, your awful flesh might try to slip out of the noose <laughs> and escape the doom of your own deliverance. The first two bullets are the key, though. I think if you just dwell on those first two again, any activity where creature credit is the objective and any activity where God's glory is diminished in favor of your own, that's a wonderful place to start, to get real practical on your own. It's interesting, too, because this list really has been stated in a much more succinct terms in the past. Up here on the board, I used to, I call it the great litmus test for any activity. Up here on the board, is what I'm thinking, doing, or planning even bringing glory to God? That's the litmus test, is what you're thinking, doing, or planning, bringing glory to God. That's how you know. If it's not, my friend, you're investing in the world. That's it. Pretty simple. As the Spirit warned us last time, as an addition to all of this, do not blame others for your poor decisions. Again, I'm going to say this. Do not blame others for your poor decisions. I don't see this as much in uh, the more mature people, say, in our congregation. I see it in the younger folks. And when I say younger, I mean younger in the faith, possible younger physically as well. But this goes to that group. Do not blame others for your poor decisions. Uh, most of you are so ridiculously entitled, it's pathetic. It's disgusting. It's grotesque. You can thank your, mostly, often, your, your parents for that. A lot of you had crappy parents, still have crappy parents, who, who wipe your, you know, have put a bib on you, for lack of, you know, figuratively speaking, 
put a bib on you and wipe your mouth for you. You get yourself in trouble, they bail you out every single time. That's not helpful. That's called entitlement. Uh, they've created little monsters that have grown up and now they're 20, 30, 40 years old. Stand on your own two feet. Act like men. Be strong, right? That's what the Bible says. Do not blame others for your poor decisions. The Holy Spirit isn't, talk, uh, isn't talking to your mommy or daddy right now, frankly. He's talking directly and unequivocally to you. Now, especially that you've heard it, this is the beauty of the Word of God, especially that you've heard it, now you are held personally responsible to your Creator for it. Luke 12, 48, Part B. In the Amplified, from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. That's called personal responsibility. And to whom they entrusted much of him, personally, they will ask all the more. Again, back to our instigating principle now. Seeing it all as truth, behind every temptation is an invitation to merchandise in Satan's economy. We're answering a question, remember? How do I do this? How does this happen to me? What does it mean to... to invest in Satan's economy. This is it. You're invited through temptation to invest in Satan's economy. Behind every temptation is an invitation to merchandise in Satan's economy. It's a bad investment. Solomon wrote an entire book about it included and concluded all is vanity. Accept his wisdom and save yourself a lot of trouble. Okay, this brings us back to the capstone principles from this series, beginning with God owns our success. These are points of review from last time. God never asks his children to do something without first equipping them for success by grace. Our job is to humbly submit to him. Remember even submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ in Ephesians 5.21. This is the practical side. This is how we know we're submitting to him. Our job is to humbly submit to him. He has told us he owns our success. His grace is sufficient. Therefore, our confidence has been on the table since the start of this magnificent 80-part series, right? Our confidence has been before us. And then lo and behold, God says, I own your success. What does that do to your confidence? Well, I don't know about you, but he's perfect. I'm not. So if he says, I own your success, I've got everything prepared for you to be successful, then I'm going to be really confident whenever I put my stake or I invest my life in him. So what have we learned? Well, for starters, equipped for success. Being equipped for success with the word of God we are equipped for success by grace through faith. Our confidence then rests on the power of the word and the spirit in us, not in earthly things. This is what it means to abide in God's economy of grace. Remember those two bullets, right? Any activity that basically robs God. Anything that elevates the flesh and robs God of glory, that's what it means to invest in Satan's economy. Well, we're not talking about that. That's failure in a nutshell. What about success? Well, God says he owns our success. And with the word of God, we are equipped for it by grace through faith. Our confidence then rests on the power of the word and the spirit in us, not on earthly things. Thank God for that. This is what it means to abide or even invest in God's economy of grace. Similarly, more on God owns our success. God's word never comes up shy of its purpose. Remember Isaiah 55, 11? That's what it said. God's word never comes up shy of its purpose. This means that when the word is implanted to, into our soul, it is guaranteed to be effective. It is guaranteed to be affected, effective. Because of this fact, we are held personally responsible to the truth. The only thing can... Thwart that is our own bad decision-making. If we lean on it, it has to be effective because God says so. If we deny it, if we put up our roadblocks, even in our own souls, that's when things go awry. But as far as God's concerned, since he owns our success, 
His grace is perfectly effective always. The problem is we don't always uh, utilize it the way we ought to. That's the point. Nonetheless, because he's given it to us, because it's perfect, he holds us personally responsible to it. Now concentrate. God tells us, again, I'm driving this point home for us. God tells us that he personally has ensured our success. Satan can only lie about it. So just reflect on this sort of an analogous way. If, if life is work and the end at the end of life we get to retire, which investment manager do you want overseeing your portfolio? God's retirement plan is eternal life in heaven. Satan's is eternity in hell. <laughs> From part 79 <clears throat> up here on the board, Sound investment strategy. If God owns our success, we ought to hand our entire lives over to him. Again, the best investment strategy you can possibly have, the, the best investment advice a person like me can ever give you is to invest in God. Invest your time, your energy, your resources in God's economy. Learn the word of God. Stay humble. Be delivered. Be sanctified. If God owns our success, we ought to hand everything over to him. I like, uh, again, what Lauren Daigle, the song, You Say. Uh, I like this up here on the board again from last time. Taking all I have and now I'm laying it at your feet. You'll have every failure, God. You'll have every victory. That's beautiful. All of it. Take all the good, all the bad, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Lord, it's yours. You can have it all. You guarantee my success by grace through faith. Good. Here, my confidence is going to rest in your ability. And since I think you're perfect, then I know that you will sanctify me. This is the attitude. Taking everything we have, laying it at his feet. The good, the bad, the ugly, doesn't matter. Here, Lord, I'm handing it all over to you. So here we are once again, my friends, at the end of the road, without much more to say, other than to repeat the title of our series even, 80 parts. The Lord is our confidence. All that we've learned since last summer with part one, last summer, months and months of studying the word of God, so many angles into this wondrous rose bush. We keep coming back to a particular passage of Holy Scripture to help get our minds around all of this. Up here on the board, Proverbs 14, 26 to 27 in the Amplified. In the reverent fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. You want confidence? You fear him. You fear his commands. You obey. You submit. In the reverent fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And his children will always have a place of refuge. The reverent fear of the Lord that leads to obedience and worship is a fountain of life so that one may avoid the snares of death. What do I see here? I see grace. It's always what I see at the end of a long... I gave this some thought thinking about how we are really finally departing from this series. And I look back as a teacher, as a shepherd, and I look at how the Spirit chooses to end any substantial series like this. And you know what? It always ends with grace. It's incredible. It always ends with the topic of grace. It's always what I see at the end of a long and laborious journey such as this one. It's always grace. God, in the most simple of terms, wants to deliver us by means of his own divine capabilities. He wants to sanctify us, in other words, for that is glorious in his own eyes. Our job is to simply receive his grace, which, as we've studied out in great detail, a command given by God. Receive my grace, I command you. And so... To net this all out in a practical sense, we really have one core duty left to attend to. 
Obedience. Obedience that leads to confidence. <clears throat> Obedience that leads to confidence. The Bible teaches us that humility is the key to the spiritual life. And the humble person is the obedient person. And to this person goes the blessings of knowing God intimately while here on earth. This is why the following key principle keep, keeps rising up in our messages. On the very idea of sanctification, sanctification is a function of obedience. We're not sanctified in the absence of obedience. Sanctification is a function of obedience. So as we prepare to exit this incredible series, think about that. God gives us grace. This all comes down to grace. It's summarized in grace. But we have to receive it. That's the command. God says, I've got everything covered. My grace is sufficient. But you've got to willingly, humbly receive it. We call that obedience. And when we're obedient, we receive it. And by grace, guess what? We're sanctified. Sanctification is a function then of obedience. So again, as we prepare to exit this series, let us reflect just a little bit more. Up here on the board, an old friend, an obedient mindset. Our minds must be fixed on obedience as a way of life. Not a checkbox, not a series of checkboxes, rather a way of life. Our minds must be fixed on obedience as a way of life, not merely a laundry list of checkboxes. And yes, there is a difference. The prior is in the sphere of sanctification, the latter merely religion. So the Spirit's drilled into us that obedience begins with the gospel, and then after salvation, with learning the Word of God. Now is our opportunity, so we ought to seize it. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. We've been given this thing called life, my friends. This is our opportunity to bring glory to the one who saved us. We ought to seize it, not swindle it away. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Again, an obedient mindset, our minds need to be fixed as a way of life on obedience. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to, to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware of where that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on. That's that Greek word in duo. It means to put on, just like, remember, Romans 13, 14. Put on Christ. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. From verse 8, again, up here in the board. Let us be sober. In other words, let us not be intoxicated with the world and its trappings. Let us not invest, in other words, in that economy. Let us not be intoxicated with the world and its trappings. Let us rid ourselves voluntarily and proactively. In other words, go out and look critically at your life. Reflect on a message like this deeply in prayer and figure out what's awry in your own soul. So don't just be passive about your own sanctification. Be ob obedient to the Lord. Uh, you're held responsible, as we just learned uh, moments ago. Let us rid ourselves voluntarily and proactively of the ties that bind us to evil things. For example, people, habits, stuff, you name it. Again, 
This is all for our benefit. Up here on the board, to drive it home a little bit more, sanctification is a function of obedience. Sanctification is a function of obedience. And you know what? Confidence is a function of sanctification. Sanctification is a function of obedience. Confidence is a function of sanctification. So if you want to be confident, then guess what? You have to be obedient. We have one more dangling thread from the first time we came close to ending this series. And I left it with you looking back as a sort of challenge to think about. And I'm going to do the same again. It's going to take you a little quiet time to knit it all together. But I'll give you the principle again in closing up here on the board. The goal of sanctification, the divine context for the life of a believer is love. That's the end goal. Believe it or not, God gives you commands. Why? Because a loving father does that. And when we're out of line, what does a loving father do? He disciplines us. He wakes us up. He snaps us in the forehead. Says, hey, listen, guys, I'm trying to sanctify you (laughs) so that you end up in the fullness of the sphere of love. Again, the divine context for the life of a believer is love. I've not been given the license here to explain much more than this at this point. So you'll need to dig deep within your own understanding of the Word of God to see what the Spirit wants to say to you personally on this this point on the board. Obviously, He doesn't want me leading you in any way much more than I am already. My hope then in prayer is that you take this little challenge. You find some quiet time today, this day, while it's still fresh in your mind, and pray for enlightenment. My friends, we've got exciting times in front of us. You know, it's good to be back in the saddle again. And I'm looking forward to someday soon when we can all enjoy sweet fellowship by the grace of God back at our home at North Christian Church. Until then, stay humble, rejoice always, Pray without ceasing and be thankful for all that God has given you. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible journey today. In this moment in time, this time that you set aside from eternity past to build us up, to edify us, to sanctify us in truth, Father. We know that it's the truth that sets us free. We're so grateful for it, Father. May we never become familiar with it. But rather, once again, even in closing out a series, understand that it's by your grace alone that all this happens. What an incredible thing to realize, Father. We're so humbled by it. We're so humbled by you. We respect you, Lord, our sovereign, our creator, our Lord, our savior. It's overwhelming at times, Father. We're just so grateful for all that you are. We just ask for... Continue guidance of the Spirit as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, back to our families, even, Father. And your will be done, when appropriate, out to a world that's just falling away, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.